And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com, or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leaders. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Oh, well, actually, ladies and gentlemen, I am not Soapy Dollar. I am John Harrison, the ever-faithful producer, with our expert, Jacob. Hi. I should say expert and friend. Except I'm not the expert. An ex is a has-been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure. Okay, that's a way of looking at it. That's one way. All right. Soapy it's definitely here tonight. He's in the building. He's just a little delayed, so we're going to start things without him get these proceedings underway. Well, here's what happened, and we might as well be truthful, people. For the very first time, I say first time, I ran out. Remembers. What's that now? <laughs> I said that you remember. Uh, I ran out without my case and my Bible and my notes. And I had to make a couple of stops on the way in. I was so busy taking care of that. When I got here, I reached in the back seat to get my Bible and my notes, and I had forgotten them. But we're going to do, supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, we're doing First Kings chapter 3 through chapter 18. However, the real interesting stuff occurs uh, probably more early in. And I was, uh, as we came on, I was trying to use my phone to find the Bible on my phone, so at least I could have some verses. And of all nights, for Soapy to forget his stuff, he had to forget it on the only night I have ever forgotten mine. So, we're going to have to do the best we can with all the Bible, which means that perhaps we'll get fortunate enough of people sitting at home and actually have their own Bibles, that they'd be kind enough to call in and tell us things. What does the Bible say? Well, I I was thinking that, you know, you're such a knowledgeable person about uh, things that you could probably wing it and the audience wouldn't even know. Well, I don't know. Some of these folks probably would know. But uh, speaking of that, I had a Filipino friend one time, and he could speak, he could spell any English word. I mean, anything. A-N-Y-E-N-G. Oh, wait. Uh, Anything. (laughs) He could spell anything. Exactly. Uh, They'll get that later. Anyway, but the point is, and then one day he said to me, 
since I couldn't spell like he could, he said, how would you know if I'm right or not? And it occurred to me, well, I wouldn't. And so he could be misspelling it, and I wouldn't know. Good point. So... I could be saying just about anything, just like about like everybody else. That reminds me of when, being a kid in, in elementary school, and the teacher you, you ask the teacher how to spell something. She says, "Look it up in a dictionary," and your thought is, "How do I look it up in a dictionary if I don't know how to spell it?" Is that your first thought? A lot of well, a lot. I shouldn't say every kid, but a lot of kids, at least. Once or twice as I have thought that. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, actually, starting in chapter 3 uh, of, uh, of Kings, 1 Kings, uh, there's a very interesting, the very first verse is Solomon had made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he took his daughter in marriage. And he brought her to the city of David, Hebron. And, uh, the, and David finished building the, his ho- the, the house and the house of the Lord. Now, this is in Jerusalem. However, listen to verse number two. I pulled up the Bible on my phone, so I have not got my notes, but at least I got something to look at. And verse two says... Wait, I'm not enough for you? <laughs> no, no. Enough is not the issue. I said something to look at. <laughs> anyway, um, don't, John, as flattering as the whole thing is for you, that's okay. We're going to go without it. But verse, hey, guess who's here? Yeah. But verse two says... Hold on, hold on. Soapy's here. Well, I know, but I was going to be right in the middle of my sentence. I thought I would hang on while... Well, you, yeah, but perhaps you, you want you, Soapy to perhaps, hear this, too. John, you could hang on while I finish my sentence. <laughs> well, all right. All right. One of you hang up. So, anyway, <laughs> so, um, anyway, verse 2, so he mar- he finished the house of David and the temple and, the, and the, his palace. But in verse 2, it says he brought offerings upon the high places. What, he's, what it's telling us is this. It's telling us that, um, that the, uh, he made uh, an amalgamation, a synchronism with Egypt and their queen and their religion. He also did the, the uh, Jewish religion, but he's also doing the Egyptian. So he began blending. He was pleasing his wives. And so uh, and then right after that, in verse 3, it's telling us something. And uh, it says, And Solomon loved the Lord, and he acted in accordance with the decrees of his father David. Only upon the high places he slaughtered. Now, what's the point there? In verse 3, he's trying to keep the decrees of his dad, David. Uh, he's, but he's slaughtering on the high places. That's the more the pagan religion of Egypt. And then it goes on to say that he was slaughtering on the high places and he did burnt offerings at the temple. So it's telling us within the three, three, four verses that what's happening is he's doing more than one religion. He's uh, synchronizing the religions or adapting or following more than one religion. Well, and that's kind of what goes on in a lot of places in today's world. But that was not the decree of David, his father. Um, he said uh, David's decree was, if you follow the rules of God, then you will always have a descendant on the throne. And he said, then, beside the descendant, you will have a son. 
the difference in the Jewish literature is a person may be the biological descendant of a king, but he's not, quote-unquote, a son. He has to be both the biological descendant and, two, follow the laws of God, as David stated, to be a son. And so what's fascinating is he prays for wisdom. And this is the famous passage where he prays for wisdom. And when he prays for wisdom, God grants him wisdom. In fact, uh, if we jump ahead just a little bit, let me read you this last sentence in this chapter. It really tells you what this whole thing is about. In our culture, we all consider wisdom to be the best. It's like, oh yeah, very old, very wise, I've learned a lot. However, in the Bible, it's exactly reversed. Wisdom is the beginning. Okay? So at the end. In fact, listen to what it said. It said, the last verse of this first chapter says, All Israel heard the judgment that the king rendered, and they were in awe of the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was within him to do justice. Now, that seems to say something very nice, except if you understand, biblically speaking, that it goes in this order. Wisdom understanding, knowledge. Now, I'm aware that almost everybody in our culture, and many, many times in Christian thought, it actually doesn't reverse. Wisdom is the last. And that's fine. And Sophie can probably elucidate on that. But for this textual purpose, it all it's telling us something. He's got the beginning. And in the Talmud, there's a great line that explains some of this. And it says, the greatest wisdom of God is love. So what he got was when he prayed for wisdom, he got what he prayed for, wisdom. He got love. And then if we go, let's go back now. And Sophie, are you ready to join in? I am. Thank you for uh, uh, your patience with me. Uh-huh. I, I've got us, um, got us our sheets in front of us now that we need. We, we for also have our pillowcases. Sheets and pillowcases, exactly. <laughs> All right. We're in the book of First Kings. Uh, We're yes, I've already covered that part, Sophie. What, <laughs> what chapter are you looking at now? We started in chapter 3 because we're going from chapter 3 to chapter 18. And you were looking at the, the prayer of Solomon there? At well, the we were, but first I went to the end of that first chapter, and I said, look what he got, that everybody recognized he had the wisdom of God. Now, in our culture and in Christian thought, you'd say, oh, well, that's the most ultimate thing you can get. Except, biblically, they don't list it in that order. So what it's telling the Jewish reader or the person that follows strictly what the Bible says, he's only got the first step. He hasn't got the understanding. He hasn't got the knowledge. So it's telling us that he has the wisdom. That's at the end of the first chapter. So now if we go back, we'll start to see this is the famous passage and this is one of your questions. I had uh-huh. everything prepared, but I forgot my stuff. For the uh-huh. very first time, I want to add. Mm-hmm. However, I found that you were very reliable and you forgot yours too. <laughs> exactly. So, On the same night. Who would have thought? So, at any rate, uh, so here's what we got. So Solomon makes a prayer. And God says, okay, sure, I'm going to give you answer your prayer. And he then he, we get this situation where these two 
innkeepers or prostitutes or women of the night, they come in and are arguing about a baby, right? Yes. Now, isn't there a little bit of an element of of, um, when God says, since you haven't asked for riches or you haven't asked for... There's a certain amount of approval Mm -hmm. by God with Solomon's uh, choice. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he says, ask for anything. You kind of like the genie. He says, ask anything you want and sure. so on. And, uh, and he chooses to ask for wisdom to govern his people. And there's a certain amount of admiration, right? God yes. says approval. He does. It, he gives him the gem, the beginning from, biblically speaking, wisdom. Uh-huh. And you're right. And he says, right here I'm looking at it, and it says, uh, I actually pulled up the Jewish Bible on my phone. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. had to pay for that, but... Uh, uh, anyway, so here it says, it says, hey, since you didn't ask for this, I'm still going to give you all these other things. You'll get lots of riches, honor, respect, uh-huh. and the money. That the money's important. You know? uh-huh. But then, <laughs> but that's where we kind of stop. I no comment on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, but we stop reading. But uh-huh. Listen to the rest of what he says. Yeah, I'm going to, you didn't ask for that. You asked for wisdom. That's good. And wisdom is being able to see love. Okay. Okay. But listen what the rest of it. It's verse 14, Sophie. Have you got a Bible? I do. I I found an old used Bible there. I assume it's the same, and I laid it out there for you. I've got it right here. What does it say in 14? 314? No, 1. Yeah, 314. Okay. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Mm-hmm. So, that twice... In the book of Samuel, that's what David tells Solomon. And what David was really saying is you'll be a, always have a man on the throne, a king. He'll be the physical descendant, but he'll not really be a son. A son has to, uh, a king to be both a physical descendant and a son. He has to be a biological descendant, and he has to follow the laws of God. And that's why in 14 it says, If you follow my ways, my decrees, my commandments, as your father walked, I shall prolong your days. Now that's the conclusion of him saying, And I'm going to give you things you never asked for, honor, money, all that kind of stuff. So that's part of what he did. And that's the commandment. So Solomon, he's being told that. He says, Well, you didn't ask for that. And he said, So I'm going to give you the wisdom. And the wisdom, now we go into Jewish literature, Mm -hmm. and the first story we begin to see uh, is two women and how he discerns what's actually going on between these two women is looking for love because the greatest wisdom of God is love. So what he can do, he can tell the difference who's the real mother by looking for the element of love. So... Anyway, he got up, and these two women came. And it depends sure. on how you interpret it. Mm-hmm. And you know the story. Why don't you run with it for a minute? Because you, you just joined us, and perhaps oh, oh, people sure. would like to hear you speak. <laughs> That's great. No, yeah, it's a, it's a simple story, but but, but I think everyone is impressed with it uh, always. Uh, two, two women come to him, uh, and they have a child, uh, a baby, and they both claim the baby is theirs. Um, is this the one where yes. one uh, woman maybe rolled over yes. in the night? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and one son was. And this one was of the prior t- to DNA testing. One of the baby, yeah, prior and to also, DNA. And also, also lesbian adoption. Okay, all, prior to all of those things, and so uh, the point was that oh, it's my baby. Oh, it's my baby, and and so. Solomon is, of course, the ultimate judge. This is like it's been appealed to the Supreme Court. And Solomon is having to make this decision. Who's 
who to whom does this baby belong to which of these right. ladies and he wisely or and most of us when we first hear this story i think all of us would go wow that's that was brilliant you know how did he think of that he says well let's cut the baby in half yeah half to this woman and half to that woman and i guess we can we can assume that he did not mean that 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 they weren't actually going to cut the baby in half. I, we can assume that. Right? I, I think that's a fair okay. assumption. Okay. And so, uh, obviously, in that particular case, the woman, the the, the woman who whose baby it was, truly it was, uh-huh. uh, said, "All oh, right." She said, "No, no, no! Don't do that. Give it to the other woman." Just, of course, the other woman didn't care and said, "Fine, okay, cut it in sure. half." You know, but the one who loved the baby said, "No, no, no, don't! I'll even give the baby to the other woman before I'd have it killed." And so there you go. We are well, and actually, and then he knew who give the baby to the woman. Yeah, who, here's the verse. It says, "The woman whose son was the live one spoke to the king because her compassion was aroused." Mm-hmm. So he's looking for love in this situation. So it seems to be the first thing we should look for if we're to follow this model. Uh, is look for the emotions, the sincere emotions, the true love in the situation. And it says, uh, the first woman said, her compassion was aroused for her son. And she said, please, my lord, give give the living newborn to the other woman and put it not to death. But the other one said, no, it's neither mine or hers. Go ahead and cut. Mm -hmm. Well, then the king, verse 27, the king spoke up and said, give her the first one, the living newborn, and do not put it to death. She is the mother. So his wisdom, the wisdom is that he prayed for, he got. He got wisdom to look for love. Now, if we follow the Jewish way of thinking about this, he's never acquired after that understanding. He certainly did not acquire knowledge. Now, as I say, I understand in our culture and in the and we talked about this just last yeah, week. Yeah, we did. Let's define those terms for a moment, okay? If you don't sure, mind, uh, in, in the Jewish perspective, you begin with wisdom, then understanding, then knowledge. Tell what is wisdom in that? Sense? Wisdom is that spark, the seed that comes from God. That's a, it's a thing that says, aha, I see that we're going to have a seed here, but now I've got a raw seed. I have to understand to take that seed and plant it. Mm -hmm. I have to water it. I have to have that understanding. And then when it begins to grow, it doesn't grow bread. It simply grows a stock of wheat. Mm -hmm. But now I'm understanding that I take the seed, the wisdom, I plant it. I, with the understanding, I raise it. I do crops. And then I can take the wheat because now I know, and I know to take that wheat and make it to a loaf of bread. Loaves of bread do not grow in a field. All you get is the seed. And so wisdom is like the seed, which is equivalent to the love of God. So love is very important. Okay. And so we immediately, and that's why... And, and then is, understanding is the, the process of planting, uh, of grow, watering, watching like, grow, and then you come up with a stock yeah. of grain. And then knowledge then 
is how you take that the application of that is you take the grain and you grind up some of it and you make bread but you have some of the seeds left now you know the whole process and so you could repeat right. it so that's knowledge of the whole application you know the application no. of now see we we define i think our problem here is that we define yeah. let's just let's clarify totally the opposite the, the, way the, the bible's problem here is it doesn't use no it no, no i'm, I'm no, saying I'm our problem no no i'm joking mm-hmm. i'm joking i, I know but I'm saying I, I think uh, it's that uh, it's the way we define them, and what we've done in our culture and in, in times we because we usually say from the pure kind of Gentile American sort of thing that we, uh, uh, let me see what is it knowledge. Okay, knowledge is first. You learn something. You get a fact. You got a little factoid, okay? You got it, and you got a fact. Then understanding was is okay. We take that factoid and we act on it, and we and we see something. Like, I, I, you like math? Talk. You just talk about algebra. Yeah. yeah. You so take a, a you got a problem a algebra principle. problem, right? Yeah. You take a principle and you then you apply it and you solve a problem. And then uh, uh, understanding would be when you really thoroughly understand that principle and then you can apply it correctly apply it to any problem you yeah. can you, you really dominate it at that point so we just i think what happened is that we've just turned it around and we define we have the same definitions you have from the hebrew point of view but we just define them differently we're defining wisdom as what you define as uh, knowledge yeah, well, that's so why that's the reason we look at them. Sure, and and if you learned it from the Bible's paradigm, uh, that's why Adam knew his wife. Uh, he did not understand her, <laughs> but, but he knew <laughs> that his continues wife. until this very day. That... But, but all joking aside, because listen to the, the again. Uh-huh. Now we've gone through. He prayed for wisdom. If the Bible's understanding is that wisdom is like the love. Then what happens is we got the situation, a story, an application. We got a real case where the the rule must be applied. Uh-huh. The women right with exactly. two baby, with one baby, uh-huh. and he says, "Well, let's just kill it." The real mother says, "No, don't." And he says, "Ah, you love your baby. I've spotted the love." And at the end of that chapter is what it, this verse kind of clears it up. This is the last verse in chapter three, uh-huh. twenty-eight. All Israel heard the judgment that the king rendered, and they all were in awe of the king, for they all saw the wisdom of God was with him. Now, what did he do? The wisdom of God. He saw the love between the two. Now, that's technically the the Jewish understanding and the ancient uh-huh, biblical uh-huh. understanding, and I, and I fully understand the complications of how maybe we've taken meanings and put different labels on. Mm-hmm. But so I get what you're saying. But at the same time, to understand the text of the story within the four corners of the page, no matter what our present understanding is, we have to go ahead and accept sure. what the literature says. I think I think you I think I agree with the because I've seen it listed the the three the three elements we're talking about wisdom understanding and knowledge they're always listed in that order in the scriptures. Yes. Now, like it, I told you, I don't know if that's dis- maybe they were listing them in uh, descending order or ascending order. I'm not sure which, but I would be willing to go along with the other, with the the Hebrew perspective there. Uh, it doesn't really, in other words, it, it's not, it's 
it's not, I don't think it really matters as long as we understand the dynamic of the words and what they're intended to mean, uh, that you take them in that order. It's like I, I told you the other day, I think it's kind of like in Spanish. If you, if those of our audience who understand Spanish, uh, we have, there are two words in Spanish. One is uh, atender, attend, atender. Do you understand Spanish pretty good? You do, do See, I? yeah. Uh-huh. I can say a sentence in Spanish. Oh, okay. Is it sayable on air? Sure. Como esta frijole cabrito hacienda, amigo? Okay. What did I say? You said, how are you, beans? Como esta frijole? Beans. Como esta frijole cabrito? Cabrito is a, it's a little lamb uh-huh. or a goat. Como esta frijole cabrito hacienda, amigo? Hacienda is a ranch or a ranch house, right. and amigo is friend. So what I really said is, how are you, bean, kid? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> okay, okay. I got it. I get it. Yeah, not bad. Well, okay. not bad. Actually, it was quite bad, but that's all right. <laughs> well, in, in, in Spanish, there, from English to Spanish, I learned years ago when uh, I was learning Spanish and so on, and we were living in Spain, that we have in English the two words, attend, I attend the class, I attend school, I attended that meeting, attend, and we have a, a word called assist. Uh-huh. I will assist you. I will help you. I will aid you. Uh, will you assist me with this project? You know, that sort of thing in English. The, the interesting thing is that in Spanish, those two words are exactly the opposite in meaning. Atender means to attend. Uh, atender means to uh, take care of. Uh, assist, it means to help somebody. Atender, uh, assist, asistir means to attend a class, attend a, a function, a, a party or whatever. Uh, attend, asistir una reunión, that means attend a meeting. So the meetings are totally the opposite. And, uh, the, it's just a linguistic thing, and you just learn to turn them around. And I, I kind of apply that to this situation of wisdom, uh, knowledge, and understanding. We've just kind of changed in our language. It's the, the, the words are a little – they mean the, the exactly – the opposite uh, of what uh, in the Hebrew meaning was. Now, I do have a question about that, though. I, I don't know if that helped everybody or just confused everybody. But I do oh, have a question it, it helped, for you. I'm quite sure. I thought my sentence was particularly helpful. Yes, your 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 Spanish is very very good. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, then. So, if wisdom is just the kind of the big. The beginning point, uh, why in the book of Proverbs is wisdom uh, personified? It's women see, uh, Wisdom seems to be the, the great value because it, wisdom is personified. The woman in the streets, he goes up and down the streets. Uh, it's not knowledge or uh, understanding. It's the woman that represents wisdom. Right? And, and what, let me ask you, perfect segue. Now, are we got time or should we wait till the second? Well, uh, go ahead and well, just... Well, per- perfect segue. What, if he's got an overabundance, keen appreciation of wisdom, let's say it's love. What does he do? He has no bridle. He has no gird. He has nothing holding back. He marries we'll right a thousand back, women. 
He's got a lot of love. Fortin and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to drshelton.com or call 590-7878. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. With his new digital single, In My Blood, singer Shawn Mendes says that his goal was to make something real, something raw. In that uh, vein, the tune expresses Mendes' personal battle with loneliness, anxiety, and depression. During its contemplations about throwing in the towel of life, Mendes always comes back to the realization that giving up is not who he is. That ultimately is a redemptive realization and a positive message. But the journey there is a little bumpy, if only borderline raw. So I'll give In My Blood a two and a half out of five for family friendliness. For the full review, visit us at PluggedIn.com slash radio. I'm Bob Olaszewski for Focus on the Families Plugged In. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. With his new digital single, In My Blood, singer Shawn Mendes says that his goal was to make something real, something raw. In that uh, vein, the tune expresses Mendes' personal battle with loneliness, anxiety, and depression. During its contemplations about throwing in the towel of life, Mendes always comes back to the realization that giving up is not who he is. That ultimately is a redemptive realization and a positive message. But the journey there is a little bumpy, if only borderline raw. So I'll give In My Blood a two and a half out of five for family friendliness. For the full review, visit us at PluggedIn.com slash radio. I'm Bob Olaszewski for Focus on the Families Plugged In. Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. Listening to the Bible live with Soapy Dollar. Hello, back. We are back now. We are ready to continue. I want to look a little bit more. I, I think we may be talking this little a little bit to death. This particular little thing, but the the wisdom, understanding, Let's and knowledge. Cut it in half. Is that what you're saying? What you're saying? Cut it in half. No, 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 no. I'm trying to get a little bit of a sense on the idea of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. I do understand that they're kind of the opposite of what we think in our particular culture. We think uh, knowledge 
and then uh, understanding that wisdom is our our uh-huh. ultimate one. Sure, sure. And uh, in the Hebrew perspective is entirely different. But I don't think it's a terrible thing. It's just the way we we've redefined the words in our culture and language to mean the same to mean the opposite thing. Yeah. But what I was trying to say is that in the book of Proverbs, it's wisdom that gets pers- personified. It, it wisdom seems to be the one that is uh, highlighted there because it, you know the woman in the streets she's yelling wisdom and so on, uh, uh, crying out in the streets. And so I'm wondering if. Um, it, that seems to give the idea that you would think then that, that wisdom then is the higher, of, the more developed of the three, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, because it's wisdom that gets personified. Uh, but you, you explain to me, we, we want to we explain that in a way that doesn't insult women. <laughs> but I think it's a flattery, and it's a compliment to women. Okay. All right. Well, then that's what I was saying is that, all three of these are virtues. It's not like wisdom is no good and you really want not. They're oh, all good. You've got to have wisdom. You can never get understanding and knowledge if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have love. Oh, I just thought, doesn't Paul say something about that? Ah, the without love. Of, the, greatest the greatest of these, of these is love. Yeah. You, that's right. See? Hey, jump in there, Christian. <laughs> faith, hope, faith, uh, so, hope, and love. So, okay. But, that's right. So what he's, what he's talking about is you cannot have understanding. You cannot have knowledge unless you have the first seed. The love. The understanding of the love. That, I, I like that. I like it. Well, we can uh, move on from it. That, I, I do want to mention this, that oh. we, our bumper music we came in with City. The uh, title of that song was City on uh, City on, a, uh, let me see, City on Its Knees. Uh, 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 we're in prayer. And uh, the, in other words, the city in prayer. And I went fishing this week, Jacob. No. Uh, I went fishing a couple of days. I went down to the coast with a, a dear friend of mine, Gerald Ripley, pastor of Abundant Life uh, Christian Church, uh, Abundant Life uh, Church here church in San Antonio. Huh? Where's, it, where's his church at? Over on... Um, Mm, mm. You would have to ask me I that. I forget. Uh, um, Never mind. You forgot your. Yeah, Bible. yeah. It's in the Bible, right? <laughs> I forgot my best friend's church where it is exactly. Yeah, Randolph Boulevard, uh, on Randolph Boulevard, up in the northeast quadrant of the city. Uh, but ju- we went. Out, we had a great time uh, fishing. And, but it's and, called uh, Abundant Life. Abundant Life yeah. Church. Yeah. Uh huh. And we had a great time. It was good, relaxing, and so on. And uh, I just uh, enjoyed it so much. We we do that every now and again. I get a chance to go with them, and we have a great time of fellowship and so on. But uh, Gerald, one distinctive he has as a pastor, he's always had a, a vision for the whole city, not just his congregation and all. He's a great pastor. They love him. He's done a great job uh, there with his congregation. But he also sees beyond the walls of his own church and knows that we're all part of a body of Christ, the body of believers, the body of, of God's people in the city. And so he uh, has done a lot of work with the National Day of Prayer over the years, helping to uh, inform other pastors and churches and helping to, to lead out and helping to plan and to uh, uh, bring about some of the special projects and meetings. And this year's National Day of Prayer is on Thursday, May 3rd. You know, it's on the first Thursday of every May the month of May every year, the National Day of Prayer. And so we indeed will be again, uh, as we have been for the last 37 years now, a city on our knees. We are going to God uh, to pray for our city. And I hope that you'll remember that date, folks, Thursday, May the 3rd. Uh, there are a number, a lot of churches leave their doors open all day, and people go in for special times of intercession and prayer. Uh, people in their homes and families may recognize the day and spend some time as families 
in prayer uh, at uh, the the kind of a central event, public event for the day uh, is the steps on the steps of City Hall in downtown San Antonio at noon. There's a large prayer gathering uh, with orchestra and choir and a, a celebration. Now, in case you don't know, the National Day of Prayer, it does not emanate from any particular person or uh, denomination or church. It actually emanates from our nation's leaders. Both houses of Congress and uh, our president issues a declaration of a day of prayer. This is very common. The the first National Day of Prayer predates, actually, the writing of our, our Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Way back under George Washington, he called for a day of prayer. And then we've had those all through our nation's history. Different times our leadership have called upon the people uh, to pray. <coughs> uh, times of war and so on. Lincoln uh, issued during the Civil War a call for a National Day of Prayer as well. And and others, uh, times of difficulty and stress. And uh, in 1952, I think it was Truman who uh, first called for a national day of prayer each year. And then in 1986, uh, with the influence of um, Vonette Bright, Dr. Bill Bright's wife, uh, Ronald Reagan signed an amendment to that um, the, the, the both houses of Congress had called for a day of prayer. He put that amendment in there to make it the first Thursday of every May so that we'd know what the date is beforehand. Until then, we just had to wait till they announced what day it was going to be, and then we could begin our uh, organization organizing but now we can plan each year and for the last 37 years san antonio has acknowledged and and celebrated uh the national day of prayer and through all kinds of different ways prayer gatherings around the city but at the heart of our city at noon uh the mayor issues a proclamation of prayer a prayer day for our city and folks gather from all the different denominations at noon this is this is a, a christian prayer gathering all, of course all citizens are always uh welcome to come and pray at any one of them but there are also interfaith gatherings um with uh particularly with uh, you know, like Muslim, Hindu, uh, uh, Jewish, Christian, all different faith groups. Uh, there are all those, also those. But uh, the Steps of City Hall is the one I want to talk about today at 12 o'clock noon on the Steps of City Hall. Pray for America. The verse each year is make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And the theme of the National Day of Prayer this year is pray for unity. It's unity. Uh, which is a, a remarkable thing, I believe, with in the time when America is, uh, people have said that we are divided and, and uh, uh, being taken apart throughout the political processes and so on, more than perhaps every people have ever seen it before. And so uh, it's very interesting that this year the, the emphasis is on unity. Uh, the strength of our nation is in our unity. We are united under the Constitution. We're united. And the strength of God's people is our unity and our devotion to God and our love for uh, uh, him and his salvation and what he has given to us. Uh, so uh, this is contrary to a little bit to what we're getting out of our popular culture that kind of deify the idea of diversity. And diversity is beautiful, uh, but but it's most beautiful when we are our diverse communities are unified 
in our allegiance to God, in our worship of the true and living God. Uh, so unity is fundamental. There's our real strength. Uh, diversity is, is a great joy and a great testimony to uh, the truth of uh, our message, the truth of God. So uh, the ever, the it's interesting, I think, that unity theme. Now, this year already we'll have... Uh, uh, we'll have a Texas State Senator. We'll have a policeman, firemen, uh, firefighters, uh, first first responders will be uh, featured and all. Uh, we'll have a choir. There'll be uh, music as always. But we'll have we'll pray for visible unity among the people of God, explicit agreement about what we want God to do in our city in in, in terms of crime, in terms of jobs, in terms of youth and young people and families. We'll be praying for all these areas for our military for our uh, these first responders uh, and then finally there'll be extraordinary prayer not not just like or we all pray all the time every day in our churches every week at different congregations but this is visible unity out before in public visible unity of the people of God explicit agreement about our need for revival and forgiveness and cleansing from God as a people that we are willing to confess sins and extraordinary not just ordinary but extraordinary taking extraordinary steps of prayer, meeting together in extraordinary ways to petition God, much like the big prayer meeting they had at the uh, with Solomon here at his uh, when he was inaugurated in these special times. Uh, that's what we're looking for because the characteristics of revival. When there have been great spiritual awakenings and revivals, the Great Awakening here in America, the the Welsh revivals uh, earlier than that, and going back even the biblical revivals, there are three elements that always characterize a genuine spiritual revival. One is there is visible unity among God's people. There is explicit agreement uh, in coming together about what we want to see God do and uh, and, and an agreement about our, our, our even acknowledging our sin and needing forgiveness. And then there's extraordinary prayer. Every great revival that we've ever seen in history will have had had those three elements as part of them uh, that. And when I'm talking about a revival, the sweeping movement of God that that transforms lives, God's people are renewed and restored and strengthened. And then there's great, great evangelistic outreach, and there's great ingathering in the church, people uh, coming to God uh, and filling the churches again and worshiping God in genuine worship. So visible unity, explicit, explicit agreement, and extraordinary prayer. That's what we're looking for. It's Thursday, May the 3rd. Thursday, May the 3rd, on the steps of City Hall uh, is a, a large our central prayer gathering for that day. And we hope you'll keep that date in mind. We'll be telling you more and more about it here on this station and other stations across the city. And uh, maybe you can come down and uh, join us on that day. Uh, I was just talking about City you on its knees. You told us everything except what city? San Antonio. Oh, San Antonio. <laughs> of course. But, of course, we're beaming out to New Braunfels and Bernie. Yeah. And, and I think even New Braunfels and Bernie and some of these other Kennedy, uh, Pleasant, I believe that they are now beginning to have their own gatherings. You might want to talk uh, to folks in your community if you're from uh, one of those cities and, and find out when their National Day of Prayer gathering is all across uh, the nation. Uh, there are th- uh, tens of thousands of, of special prayer gatherings on this day. And um, I, I believe in that. I believe when God's people unite in prayer, sincere prayer. This is not just uh, an event. This is not just a kind of promoting. This is what we look for more than anything else is genuine, real 
prayer, contrition, humility, brokenness, and calling out, crying out to God uh, that we need a movement of his spirit in our land. So uh, if, if that's in your heart and a part of your passion, I hope that you'll carve out some time in your community or here in San Antonio on Thursday, May the 3rd. Keep it in mind, National Day of Prayer. Okay, it, it, that's kind of what we're looking at here. Didn't they? Wasn't it, uh, Solomon's inauguration, didn't it kind of become a big national day of yeah, and celebration? Yeah, and it certainly was amalgamated with every religion uh-huh. and every belief. And then things went downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you look... Well, said, in the case of Solomon, yeah, that's... Well... Part, uh, part of what we're saying is that uh, he got wisdom... But he didn't go ahead and get, go on to no, uh, understanding uh, and knowledge, right? Listen, uh, tell you what, look at chapter 4, verse 20. I got it. I'm right on it right now. And uh, that's in that Bible I found in the studio. That's here. right. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand. Uh-huh. That is on the seashore, the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now, what does that tell us? Do you, do you know what it's really saying? It, there was plenty. Obviously, they've got food. they got wine. Everybody's making a good living. Mm-hmm. But what's this thing in there about, like, the sand on the seashore? All the economic um, indicators were up, right? Okay, but what Dow does was up. Okay. Why do they want to slip that in there? They were as numerous as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. Hmm. Right. I don't know. Well, is that Jew- like a census? No, it's no. a Jewish idiom. Okay. And so it's what it's saying is, now see, this is the kind of stuff that's buried into this. Mm-hmm. Because what did God say to Abraham? He said, You're dis- it's not about numerosity. It's not about being numerous. Because the sands on the seashore are numerous, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Except- but didn't he promise that? You'll grow. Wasn't that part of God's promise? Yeah, but see, if you read it, and people tend to read that, especially in the non-Jewish world, uh-huh. they tend to read it as it's about the numbers, how many people there will be. That the numbers is not the issue. Okay. God said to Abraham, "Your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the sea." Mm-hmm. Or, and then He says, "Like the stars in the sky." Uh, is God saying the same thing twice? Sounds like it. Does it sound like it? Well, if that's the case, Because they're both awfully big numbers. Yeah, but see, you're concentrating on numbers. Okay. What do you do at the beach and the sand? Make sandcastles. Okay, well, is there anything else that people do when they go to the beach? How do they get out to the water? They walk on the sand. They walk on it. Aha. Uh-huh. So, uh, so in other words, <laughs> okay. Judah and Israel were numerous. The numerous is not the issue. So people are going to walk on you. Yes, because you're not following Torah. You'll be numerous, but people are going to walk on you. And this starts collapsing under Solomon. Now, the statement said to Abraham, the other comparison is also numerous, or like the stars in the sky, except... They're above you, and they shine. So the numerous is not the issue. If you do not follow the Torah, people walk on you like a sand. Because you're not obeying God, you made a promise. If you obey Torah, the laws of God, then you'll be like the stars in the sky, and you will shine, and nobody will walk on you. Oh, I like that. 
You know, there's another passage that comes to mind from the book of Daniel. It said, how uh, happy, how blessed those that, uh, well, out of the Psalms, it says, those that bring good news. Uh, but, but in Daniel in particular, it says, uh, they'll shine like the stars, those who help bring others to faith. Okay. When we help others come now, to God. If you know what the sand and stars are about, then every time you see how it's used, like it's here, it says, mm-hmm. they were numerous, like the sand of the sea. And they said they were eating and drinking. Now, it's telling you that they had some nice like, econ- a nice economy, mm-hmm. but they're not following the Torah. Isn't that interesting that often prosperity can be the great enemy of, uh, uh, of, of genuine spiritual sure. revival? Uh-huh. You know, it, prosperity is times when we get independent, we get, you know, kind of, hmm, I'm so good. You know, we kind of, and we eat and we drink and we kind of get comfortable and we're, uh, it's times of difficulty and stress often that are the ones that l- help lead to revival. Sometimes it seems like Israel was a victim of prosperity uh, in the sense that when things were going really, really well, they tended to drift away from God, it seemed like. But if when they were under duress, when there was an enemy attacking, when they were uh, uh, stressed economically or you know, the famine and times of famine or uh, uh, infestation of, you know, the... Um, the times that they have when what was the what was the insect that came that Amos talked about the worm well the worm and then the 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 the, the um, caterp- grasshoppers you know that ate up the the uh, harvest and all that sort of thing when they were in difficulties like that that's when they really at times that's when they really came back to God so uh, prosperity can be a a uh, a real hindrance right. to our walk with God. I remember C.S. Lewis used to say, uh, or had a saying that God whispers to us uh, in our pleasures, but he yells to us in our pain, in our suffering, our difficulties, our tribulation. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Bible talks about that as well. Well, that's very interesting. The, the numerous as the sand, so... Th- but it's what telling the, you what the writer here is telling us yeah. that things the were going downhill. Telling us here they're not obeying the Torah. They're not going and well. And what have we learned from the two chapters before this? He's not. Mm-hmm. He's doing uh, what's the word syncretism. Mm-hmm. He's bringing other religions. He's trying to make them all fit. He's bringing uh, married a, uh, the, the princess of Egypt. Uh, for one, it announces yeah. there's particular. But he had what seven hundred, seven hundred wives, three hundred. Concubines. concubines. So that's a thousand women. And so, uh, and, and a lot of these, I guess, we would understand this. Uh, the kingdom reached its apex in its greatest strength under the reign of David and Solomon. Now, Solomon inherits the nation here uh, in wealth and strength. David has conquered all of their enemies, the Philistines and others. And so now uh, they're the big enchilada. They're the, they're the big power there in the, in the, in the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, uh, it kind of tended to shift from one to the other. But for the golden age of Israel, it was under the kingdom of David, and Solomon inherited that. And they're strong. They're, he's making treaties, and, and uh, they're getting uh, money and resources and from other nations it, around is, them. What does it warn in uh, chapter 8 of Samuel? What does it warn that a king will do? Take your your children uh, and bring them into his sure. service in the palace. That he'll take your crops. He'll overtax you. Exactly. He'll send your children and what into comes battle. Up in the next two chapters in the Book of Kings, he enslaves his own people for more wealth, conscription of laborers. So he's not being a good guy. 
Now, King so Solomon. How could he be have the ultimate wisdom if if wisdom is the ultimate? It says King Solomon levied forced laborers from all of Israel, and the forced laborers numbered thirty thousand men. He sent them to Lebanon, ten thousand a month in relays, and I mean he was building. He was building all kinds of palaces for his wives, yeah. for one, uh, and other and other things. So, yeah, you can see that uh, the Solomon starts well in a sense, but then he doesn't. He has a tremendous potential. But it's unrealized potential, and he uh, burden overburdens the people, taxation, uh, conscription of labor, and so on. And of course, he breaks these commands of God about marrying uh, people outside the faith. And what does that lead to in the next couple chapters? Compromise, spiritual compromise on his part, well, right? Physically, because I know this is going to be a hard thing for people to say, but you know, you know, there was a famous debate in 1263 between. Uh, a guy named Nachmanides uh-huh. and a guy named Pablo Cristianti, uh-huh. the king of Spain, was the judge. Uh-huh. And they debated the entire book of Genesis. Fascinating. And so the Nachmanides starts off with like this. He says, King, my beliefs are my beliefs. Mr. Cristianti, Pablo Cristianti, is from the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. His beliefs are his beliefs. Both are respectable. He said, but in reality, your decision to meet here today is more impactful than my beliefs. Because you're going to make the decision on what happens to all these Jews. So you're going to make a decision. So for me right now, your decision is actually more important than what I believe. Now, that's why I start off by saying that's going to be a difficult thing for some people. Mm -hmm. But he starts off because the truth is... Uh, and by the way, at the end of that trial, it was clear that Nachmanides was winning. And the, the Catholic Church sent word and said, stop the trial. We'll resume it again in the future. And to this day, it's never been it's resumed. It's never been resumed. <laughs> okay. But now, right after, he's walking like the sands of the sea. And I was looking for it, and I failed to bring my notes as I mm-hmm. shared with everybody. But after that, in the next chapter, it tells us again. He's like the sands of the sea. It's telling us something. But if you haven't been told that that's an idiomatic phrase, mm-hmm. then you're going to think, well, he's always going for a walk on the beach. What's the thing here, you know? Things are going really well. Yeah. So, but then he starts enslaving his own people. And what I was driving at is, his failure to follow God's laws. God's laws prohibited slavery. And in just a, a couple of hundred years, they had gone from the slavery in Egypt to slavery under Solomon in Israel because they failed to follow God's laws. And there is a second place, and I, I'm sorry, I'm not locating it, but I'm desperately trying to. What? Uh, the, another mention of that idiom? Yes. And it's uh, the second time. Verse 29. 29, that's 429. It, yes. Okay. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Yeah, so it's wanting you to know that, look, this guy, he's got something, but he, he's not applying it correctly. And so he actually takes his people back into slavery. So actually what's happening is there's a lesson here. I know that everybody talks about how wise Solomon is. While I can agree with that, the truth is if we read what he's doing, he's married all these women. He's amalgamated and and syncretism with Mm -hmm. all the different religions. Mm -hmm. Syncretism is, 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 uh, let me just put that in, that, that is... 
Syncretism isn't uh, overt, necessarily overt, outward heresy. In other words, instead of uh, idolatry and just going and actually worshiping another god and so on, what they do is they take elements of another uh, of a, another uh, pagan worship or uh, the elements of worship of a false god or an idol. They take elements of that and they kind of weave it into uh, the, the the Christian practice or the Jewish practice, and they so they kind of compromise uh, their faith and trust by not overtly, but they kind of oh, well we'll go ahead and do that. We'll go ahead and, and put in a little bit of of. Um, or of idolatry and something in our worship. It, it, that's what its syncretism is, and that's what evidently Solomon did, is that he built not only palaces for his queens that come from uh, these women, he struck up political liaisons or political marriages with other kings and other nations, but those queens brought their their worship and their they God with, their them. Religion with them. And so he not only built them a palace, but as part of that, he would build an altar or he'd build a, a worship center for them, for their false religion and so on. And they would be able to then the, continue their worship and draw Jewish men and women into that worship as well. So they were kind of, uh, they were making a place. Do you remember back in it. chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, it says something about, it gives them, a, the, if you follow the commands of David... Uh-huh. You to follow my decrees, my laws, my ordinances. And, uh, what happened? You got music. Are you kidding me? That segment went by so fast. Well, anyway, he says it again just before he implements slavery. God comes to Solomon in 6.12 and says, Follow my decrees, perform my statutes, observe my commandments. Then I'll uphold everything. And he doesn't. And then he says instituting slavery. This is complicated because on the one hand we're trying we're dealing with sensitive things. Wisdom is good. It is still a virtue. It's a good thing, but it's supposed to lead on to then to understanding and right application and then to knowledge. Yeah, biblically speaking. Yeah. Now, I'm aware, as I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Christian culture and in our culture. We, we made that clear, but, but it didn't do that in Solomon's case. And here this great person we, we idolize in some way is a good person. There was this fatal error in his life. We'll be right back. Okay. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back. Our final segment. I tell you, Jacob, that second, that last segment just flew by so fast. I haven't even given the number 340-9585. 340-9585. If you'd like Man, to talk a little. so fast I couldn't write it down. 340-9585. Now, the, the point is, is we're entering in the book of Kings now, the first Kings. And we're starting out after Saul uh, is gone. Then we know David came along and, and Israel 
arrived to its apex. It reached its greatest, the golden era, they call it, of, of, of Israel under, under David. Their enemies are conquered. Uh, they are now collecting uh, money from other, from other states, the way the others get money from them quite often. And so they're very strong. They're very powerful. They're very wealthy. And Solomon now, uh, the son of Bathsheba, uh, has become the king of uh, of Israel, and he they continue on this path. But we're talking. But we do recognize that Solomon uh, Solomon begins well, but he, he he doesn't go on from wisdom, understanding you know kind of the the love element, uh, the basic idea of love, and so on. But he doesn't go on to learn how to really understand uh, wisdom and apply uh, God's wisdom and deeply and then to apply it to different areas because we see over and over again this process of uh, of uh, compromise, spiritual compromise. He marries so many other women. He brings in... Uh, in his, it brings in um, other religions. Well, let me just read it to you. Go ahead. Chapter 11. Solomon loved many foreign women, in addition to the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Adamites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. And he brought in other nations, and he loved all the women. Yes. And he, and he, he had only love. He had no other restraints. Doesn't go beyond that. Yeah. And God continually reminds him, keep my commandments, obey Torah, keep my commandments in all these instances. But he's also not only the women in his life, but also there were these alliances. Like in chapter 7, he uh, forms this alliance, a building alliance with Hiram, who is the king of Tyre. Uh, up, up, the great city-state of Tyre, up on the uh, northeast. Uh, chapter 5, he starts with that alliance. Uh and, and he compromises, of course, there's compromise involved with them as well. And they get involved in sending lumber, buying lumber from economic kind of ties and economic uh, uh, treaties that he forms with these other countries. Now, we should pay attention to all of this as Americans because we form treaties with, with you know, with China. We Right now, we're uh, our trade imbalance with China, with Mexico, with other countries, uh, these th- these treaties, these trade treaties, are important because they signal something in in uh, you know, maybe uh, and I don't know enough about it probably to be even mentioning but but we have the same thing going on today in our nation they're uh, they're even being debating you know the the relationship the economic ties with Russia and and other nations in China that's all part of it well. Solomon does the same thing. He has his economic uh, treaty and tie-in with Tyre, the city of Tyre up in the northeast. He and, does all that bad stuff. And they have—that's yeah. the home of Phoenicians. They, they have—they worship. Uh, they have idolatry. They worship false god. They have child, child sacrifice. Child sacrifice is part of their religion, and, so, and that comes out to be something that ultimately. Now the sages say that Solomon did not involve himself personally. He <laughs> kept his own religion, but he allowed everybody else to have theirs, and that's generally okay. Except in the land of Israel, it was forbidden. Mm-hmm. Now I'll tell you what's interesting. After this, uh, Solomon dies. And he had, had many kids with all these women. And he has one. That, but before he, that one, he notices in chapter 11, verse 28, uh-huh. uh, Solomon noticed this young man named Jeroboam. Mm-hmm. And he was a mighty man of valor. Solomon had seen the young man 
and he was impressed with how he worked, and he did his work. So he appointed him over all the taxation over the house of Joseph. Now, whenever it says in the Bible, the house of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, okay, that's two different tribes. If you'll never see in the Bible, if it says Manasseh or Ephraim, it'll never say Ephraim and Joseph. You can't because that'd be one and a half tribes. So Joseph, he pointed over the house of Joseph, that's technically two tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh, because remember, Joseph mm-hmm. blessed the two kids, and he said, you guys are going to be my mm-hmm. tribe, Joseph. Okay. So he does that. And what happened is Jeroboam, as we read on, he's the one that he sends everybody to have a meeting with the son that took Solomon's place, whose name is Rehoboam. Rehoboam. And what, you remember what Rehoboam says to everybody? You've got it written on your question. Oh, yeah. It says uh, they come to him and their counsel to him is to lower the taxation, to lower taxes. We're we're under this huge burden of taxation. And he says, "Um, I'm not going to lower it. In fact, I'm going to increase it. You think under Solomon you had heavy taxes. Wait till you see what I'm going to do. And I forget the phrase he uses, something about it. He says, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's waist. Which means, yeah, he's going to make it even tougher on them, in fact. So he followed suit that his dad did. Taxation and enforcing uh, everybody, all Labor, the men in Israel, away the, yeah. do uh, over a third of a year of work on the palaces and on the temple. So they had to give up their own farms for a third of the year. That's really forced labor, for slavery. Well, what happens is Jeroboam, in reaction to that, he rebels. How much time, uh, I mean, to bring this up today to make us understand, they have calculated, uh, there have been calculations made of how much, what we pay in taxes to the United States government now, you have to work until a certain month. In the middle of May or something like that. So basically, we're giving up five months of pay to pay our taxes. It's almost scary how things repeat themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly, over and over again. But anyway, let's go on with that. So so Rehoboam, the the one, the son Rehoboam follows his teaching of his dad's son. Now, Jeroboam was, in fact, in the lineage of David, right? He was one of the... was, Was he not? No, that's the sin. I see, okay. Jeroboam is not in the line. He's from uh, the house of Joseph. He's a, uh, from Ephraim. Ephraim, okay. So, in fact, uh, yeah, that's right. So, see, but he leads, they rebel, and we get the famous line when it says, We have nothing to do with the house of David. And they rebel. And it, this is where we get the story, and it begins telling the story of the so called missing or lost ten tribes. Right. Now, they do rebel, and they stay free for over 100 years. Essentially, the ten tribes in the north, apart, uh, ten tribes apart from uh, uh, um, David's Judah and um, um, Benjamin. Benjamin. Stay in the south. Which Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and uh-huh. David from, uh-huh. from Judah. Right. Uh, and so they they remain intact together in the south with Jerusalem as their their capital. But the ten northern tribes... They follow Jeroboam in, in rebellion. Yes, they do, and, and break away from the nations. Yes, uh, they do. And after that point, <laughs> they become known as by the name Israel. Mm-hmm. 
Now, then they start calling. And so Israel, I've always wondered kind of why that Israel happens, is the know? whole nation. But when they break, they be, they call themselves Israel. And then you've got Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms existing, coexisting right. side by side. Yeah. But after this point, you'll be reading about the ten tribes calling themselves Israel. So when it's, at this point, it's calling Israel. It's referring to the ten tribes. Now, eventually. It sure does confuse things, doesn't it? Because you, you, you have to look in the context to find out, is it talking about the ten northern tribes yeah. or is it talking about the people of God, Israel, that the whole that God had with whom God had formed the covenant yes. and so on? Well, so you have is. to be careful in so your understanding. The, the house of David is supposed to be the king. <clears throat> so they rebelled. They went off. And after about 150 years, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, the Syria, Assyria, the, everybody starts invading, and they take away the ten tribes and the what we call the lost or missing tribes. Well, first it's first it's Damascus, uh, uh, right? I guess that would be Assyria. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but the point is they take them away, mm-hmm. and which three tribes do they take first? The tribes that stayed on the eastern side of the... You got it. Remember when Moses consented to let the two and a half tribes stay on the east side of Uh the Jordan? That piece of property that Moses consented to, he didn't bring it up. They said, we want to do it. And they said, Moses said, okay. He was giving them the consent. That was laying the foundation for rebellion right there. Moses' job was, he should have said, no, God didn't give us that land. God said the land of Israel, so no, you guys cannot do that. But he didn't. He let them have their way. Um, there may be a reason. Or Those two. are the tribes of um, Reuben, Gad, and, Reuben Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, okay. yes. So what's happening is those are the first three taken away. So there's a little lesson there. And then the rest are taken away. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting about this is that uh, this is a, a famous passage. If you remember in the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures, yeah. Jesus says, could I have a drum roll, John? Um, I have well, that's come, pretty good, John. Uh-huh, I have come to the lost sheep of Israel. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about those ten tribes. Why is that important? Because the first job of the Messiah is to re- bring back the ten messing tribes. That's what that whole business is about. And wow. if you don't know this story, you'll mess what Jesus is saying. Well, yeah, this is a huge part of the history of Israel and, of course, a part of what the role of the Messiah that Jesus plays there. So, so, and I want to point out then that, that one of the ways that he compromised with Hiram, he, he enters this, uh, this uh, uh, really, at first it's an economic alliance. They're, they buy wood, and the wood is brought down. What they would do is they'd cut these, these forests, and they would bring it down the, the uh, shore. They would float it on the Mediterranean down the shore and then bring it inland, from uh, the shore, uh, uh, I forget the name of the city there, but they would bring it inland to Jerusalem to to build uh, temples. Yeah, they, and, and that was where they got it. Money always led to it. Sure. But also Hiram uh, was given land. He actually gave him some cities that were given to Hiram. And all of this was compromising the security and safety and the integrity of the nation of Israel. Right. That later on... But how do, how do you know this? Well... No, no, no. I mean, how do you know that's right? Because 
Oh, you, oh, okay. you've had ex- <laughs> because you've had exposure to knowing what God's laws were. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, you won't know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. I could tell you anything. Now, is there anything in the Christian scriptures when Jesus says, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel? Mm-hmm. He's referring to the ten tribes, you see. Mm-hmm. Now, did they come back? Well, we find something interesting in the Christian scriptures in the book of James. Who does he address his letter to? The tribes that are scattered. Ah, you see? There's a story going on here. Okay, now, wait a minute, because I've always understood that to be the tribes uh, that were part of the dispersion. The the diaspora. Yeah, diaspora. And and it's not only the ten tribes, right? Wasn't it? But he says the twelve. Okay, so that's all 12. Okay, okay, okay. So, But he starts off like that. And in fact, later on, we'll actually see as we get going in the book of Kings, we'll see that sometimes, sometimes, the certain king, a couple of kings came along in Judah and Benjamin before the whole thing collapsed and invited, and it actually says this in Chronicles and in Kings, invited the tribes of the some of the people of the ten so-called messing mm. tribes in the northern kingdom, now called Israel, to come down to Jerusalem for the big holiday of Passover. Mm-hmm. They come down. And some people of five different tribes come down. Some people of five different tribes come down. You hear what I just said? Some people of five different tribes come mm-hmm. down. So they come down for Passover on the way back. Jeroboam had put a roadblock and guards there and would not let them return. So, is there any story you can think of in the Christian scriptures, book of Matthew, that seems to suggest this story? I think of the the, uh, ten virgins. Ten virgins! Five of them were Perfect. Accepted. Right. And five come back and they can't get in. And here's the story. So what to say, Jesus telling the story. Mm -hmm. Hey, there were ten tribes that ran away. Mm -hmm. Five had a lamp. A lamp is the king. Oil is the Torah. And you'll find it as we go down through this book of Kings. I'll tell you what the lamps are. It actually says the lamps. It gives a definition of the lamps. Because the lamp is the king. What he teaches by his light is the Torah. Now, that's what the story is that we're presently reading in Kings. When Jesus is telling the story, I know there's different takes on it Mm -hmm. in the Christian world. Mm -hmm. But so the five guys don't have any oil. So they go out to find some oil. They don't have any Torah. So they go out, and if we compare it to the story we're reading, they go down to Jerusalem for Passover. Well, Jeroboam didn't want some traders coming back, so he put up a wall with guards, sentries, and said, you can't come back. You, you want to go down there? You stay down there. Well, the entire five tribes were up north with him, and some of the other five tribes, because they all didn't go down. Mm-hmm. Now, they couldn't get back in. They went out to find some oil, Torah. Passover. They're coming back. The story starting to make sense at all? Yes. And in the story Jesus tells, he says there was these five. They went out to find some oil. Passover in Jerusalem. They come back, but the door was shut, and he wouldn't let them in. The king, the, the principle of that story 
It's not an antagonist. It's not mm-hmm. Jesus. Yet the antagonist is actually a, uh, the protagonist is not Jesus. He's an antagonist. Who Jesus is telling the story about is Jeroboam, not the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He said, because if the Messiah would let the five in, so well, you guys meant to do good. You went out to find some water. Sure, come on in. You guys meant to be here. But the truth is now, I know in the Christian take mm-hmm. that that's like the Messiah saying, oh, it's too late. Too late. You guys didn't make it. Sorry. Yeah, and the oil represents sure. the Holy Spirit. I know it does. That, but, the, that, that, but we're going to find as we go on to the book of Kings, it tells us what all this is. It's not made up stuff. But if, And the reason it says virgins is this, is that... When somebody's sins are forgiven, oh, you're going to, I love this. I hope you're going to love mm-hmm. it. When their sins are forgiven, they come back like pure virgins. Mm-hmm. So the ten tribes will be ten virgins. Their sins will be forgiven. They'll be like ten virgins when they return. Now, in the book of Amos, in the, and two or three other books, and the prophets, and Isaiah, it says, it actually says when they come back, they are virgins. Mm-hmm. It says the words. Mm-hmm. Now, if what I'm saying is correct, is there any place in the Christian scriptures, uh, in the New Testament, where somebody has their sins forgiven and they're called a chaste virgin? The answer would be yes. So I don't mean to interrupt you, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got it right, yes. Uh, <laughs> you uh, got it right, yes. Okay, well, t- tell us. Uh, <laughs> sure, and, uh, and and that was part of my notes that I forgot tonight. Uh, that's right. Anyway, so, but yes, it comes back, and Paul says, Oh, I want you sinners to have your sins forgiven so that I may present you. And it's in, I think it's Corinth, mm-hmm. Corinthians. And he says, I want to present you to Jesus as a chaste virgin. Mm-hmm. Well, the question is, these were sinners. They had their sins forgiven. He's calling them a virgin. Now, let's take that one minor step further. And and, and the, the church or God's people then are, are called uh, the, 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 the bride. The bride. The bride. Yeah, of course. Uh, exactly so. Uh, yeah, the groom. Uh, yeah. Perfect. The, now, if you come back and your sins are forgiven and you're like a virgin... You know, there's no sins involved here because mm-hmm. when you had sex, you can have sex, but you got to be married. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you come back and you're a chaste version, as Paul says in the Christian scriptures in the New mm-hmm. Testament, do you get the picture of why it was so important and why you're being told that Jesus Himself was born of a virgin without sin? Mm-hmm. You see, it's the whole it's the whole motif. He's a, he's from a virgin. He has no sin. When you get your sins forgiven, you come back as a chaste virgin mm-hmm. with no sins. It's in the book of Corinthians. And we too are born again. And, yes. And, but I, that's all true. But I think I guess that's part of the element, the continuation is, of the idea. It is the continuation. But I think it's essential mm-hmm. to understand the story. Mm. Very, very interesting. Of course, it was Isaiah where we read that uh, a, a virgin shall conceive and you, you be born, that sort of thing. Is that tie-in in any way? or is that Well, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I, we all know that there's a lot of equivocation and dis, uh, dissension about what that verse mm-hmm. really says. Well, we've got a lot more in Kings that we haven't gotten to, but we've talked about the the meat things, of the yeah. book is, is that it's this decline under Solomon and then now under Rehoboam, the nation divides. And, and may, this, may I just interject again, we as you're going to go on? Mm-hmm. What caused this 
dissension, as you said. Is that the word you used? Uh, yeah, the, the decline. The, 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 the decline. The, the descend uh, okay. well, what uh, over time. It? What caused it? It was spiritual compromise. No. They did not keep the commands there of God. Go. They did not, it's so they, clear. Every time something tragedy is going to happen, God comes to Solomon in the dream world and says, Hey, follow my commandments, my ordinances, my laws. He doesn't. Next thing, we got all this bad stuff, all these marriages. Then the next thing, we got slavery. And each time, he says, hey, do this. So what's causing it is this mm-hmm. failure to follow God's law. And it wasn't like, I, I'm guessing then, it wasn't like they shouldn't have known. I mean, they were warned by Moses early on. They were more warned by Samuel early on. These things are going to happen. This is what even Solomon at the inauguration. He yes. says, as long as he you do told, this, uh, this right. will happen. Moses this, told him this, right up front in Deuteronomy, this is what's going to happen. Even to the details. You'll, ultimately, you'll even be taken out. You'll be taken out of the land. Uh, and, and, and it's so... It's so strange, isn't it? Well, in, in a way, I used now, to think in my mind. you only got a few minutes left to go uh-huh. ahead. I bet that's what you're going to say. And, okay. and I used to think in my mind growing up, I used to think, wow, those dumb old Israelites, how yeah. could they possibly do that? Right. And yet, to be honest, we've gotten a chance to see the, the people of God in our own nation. We've seen that very, I think we're seeing some of that same process in our, the decline of our own country and nation from I was going to say, apply it to us now. Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Bye. yeah. We, we, we've already talked about the, the, the way we've, uh, we're not following after God. We've taken prayer. We're taking out the Bible. We've compromised. Now, I understand that we're not Israel. I do understand that. I thought you wanted to be part of Israel. I, I know, but the nation America is not Israel. I'm saying I'm not this. We're not under that mandate. But the people, <laughs> but the people of God are part of Israel. And, and uh, it, but we we compromised, and not only just not national compromise. But I'm talking about the believers, the Christians here. That we are compromised. We we're not. Uh, doing what we should. We're not obeying God's laws and commandments. We're not. I was with fishing with a, 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 this pastor friend of mine, but also another fellow that went with us. Did you say uh, his first name was John? No, no. I just wondered. Okay. But he is uh, a godly uh, um, Catholic believer here. In the, and, and he was talking about, but, but boy, we're so, we're not, here we're having abortion. We're killing millions of unborn children and so on. And, and he, was, he was talking to me because he's well informed on the issue about all of the economic, uh, even economic uh, difficulties that that has caused. If we hadn't killed all of these babies and all these, there would have been young working Americans, uh, now we're, we're compromised. We just got to have all of these immigrants, and, we, and it's led to some of our problems with immigration. It's we, we, in certain communities of our nation, certain uh, ethnic communities are, are now the torn apart. The family unit is destroyed. Uh, many, many children born out of wedlock, and how and, and the devastation that that has on the society, on the culture, children without fathers in the family, and so on. So the whole thing. It does. It just go. We can see the process now. I started off by saying I could, I would, when I looked at Israel in my youth, I would say, "Wow, they're they're so dumb. Why did they do that?" And now I realize how easy it is to see happen. I, I've watched our own culture, our own society, 
compromise values, uh, turn away from uh, following after God, obeying his commands. I mean, it doesn't mean we can't be a democracy. It can't, doesn't mean we can't be inclusive, but we've got to maintain our values, right? Would that? I would think. Be the lesson? And, you know, in that vein, yes. may I say, always be the kind of parent you would like to have for a parent. Thank you, folks, for joining us. See you next week here on The Bible Live. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture and is brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas, 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.